Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is a neuropsychologist, author, teacher, speaker who spent 46 years meditating. He's a senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. He's lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, but not in that order. And he's taught in meditation centers worldwide. And the reason I want to have him on the show is he's an expert on positive neuroplasticity rather than negative neuroplasticity, which is what a lot of us are getting thanks to all this you know, constant fear cycle in the news. He's, he's had five New York Times bestsellers as opposed to my small three. So uh, I'm already intimidated. <laughs> Rika, welcome to the show. <laughs> Dave, it's such a pleasure to hang out with you again, really. Uh, I th- I think it's been quite a while. Uh, we're on somewhere around episode 700-ish, and you were guest on episode 243. So this is going back like two-thirds of the history of the show. And we talked about happiness and hardwiring happiness back then. But you have a new book out called Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. And that title is basically crack for me. I'm like, oh, wait, ancient yeah. wisdom, new science? Okay, you got me. <laughs> Uh, why after five other books, uh, what's new in neurodharma? What is neurodharma? That's great. Well, I was just thinking there for a second, like you, as I know you have this aspiration for the highest levels of health, really broadly defined, the really highest levels. And in much that same way, that aspiration fuels, uh, the book neurodharma. It's a made up word. It really means putting together the ancient traditions with modern brain science. And what it's basically about is looking at seven ways of being that are perfected in enlightenment. And then in effect, reverse engineering those seven ways of being so that we can develop them inside ourselves, literally hardwired into our own brain. Is our hardware built for us to be enlightened? That's a deep question. You know, there's a fundamental question, like what's our true nature? What's the deep nature of everything? And I would say that on the one hand, our deepest nature in effect is already awakened. And yet it's really difficult to rest in that true nature for more than a few seconds in a row, given the brain's survival biases and then the ways that modern culture um, floods us and distracts us. So I would say fundamentally it is in our nature to be wakeful and free. And what is interesting as well is that when people are not disturbed, including our other non-human animal cousins, like zebras, why zebras don't get ulcers, and the title of Sapolsky's great book, right? Mm-hmm. So when we, when we don't feel disturbed, when we're not agitated, when we're not provoked, when we're rested, and there's not much of the craving, which the Buddha identified as this driver of, that comes from a sense of deficit and disturbance, we tend to drop into a, what I call the green zone, in which the mind is colored with a sense of peace, contentment, and love. And that's one aspect of awakening. Uh, Other aspects include a sense of being able to completely rest right at the front edge of now. And what the book's got a lot in it is super cool, cutting-edge brain science. Like, how do they do it, right? When you see someone who's great at something, you want to understand, how do you do that? I've done tons of rock climbing. So I would watch people who are better climbers and go, whoa, how do you do that, right? And then I kind of imagine being that way myself and live into that way of being in much the same way. How do the great sages, how do the enlightened people throughout history or the people who are very realized today, how do they do it? What's happening in the brain? So the book's a very respectful inquiry into that 
with tons of plausible neuroscience. And it's all very practical because I'm a practice guy. I'm a methods guy in the trenches. It, it, your perspective on that is, is pretty unusual. And it, it's one that I share, Rick. My neuroscience uh, company, 40 Years of Zen, I, I want to find the highest performing brains out there and yeah. make them perform better. But I get to look at them along the way and say, oh, what yeah. brain patterns do you have? And our ability to to look at them now is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and it it teaches it, it teaches you a lot because it's one thing to to you know go sit with a guru and you know get a hug from Ama or whatever you know whatever whatever guru you find, but then you have to go home and like well, how do I take this? How do I learn that so that I can do that for myself? And that's a challenge. But is it a challenge that most people are going to do at least in this lifetime? Well, it's really interesting. So, uh, in effect, the question is why bother, right? And not, no, not really. I, I think it's worth it, but like how fast can we do it is the question. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> both both are true. Um, I think the crux of it is practice and also people start wherever they are. Uh, for example, the book explores, like I said, seven practices, or you said in the subtitle, seven practices. So just take the first one, steadying the mind. So just take the first one, steadying the mind. Mm-hmm. We can all be, we all know what each one of these seven ways of being feels like, and we develop them in ourselves. So they're more and more stable, literally based on positive neuroplasticity, physical changes in our neurology. So we can develop them so they're more stable. So first one, steadying the mind. We all have a feeling for that. We all have a sense of becoming more mindful, more concentrated, more stable in our presence. And we can probably have had times where we were really dropped in, super dropped in. It's hard to sustain, though, without practice. And then we can recognize people who have really developed that. They've kind of perfected it. I think of the mountain of awakening, many routes to the top, but the same seven steps on each of the routes to the very top. And certainly one of the fundamental steps is steadying your mind, which involves certain neural factors that I explore in the book, like five in particular, that's helped steadiness of mind. So absolutely, and you know, to be pointed, in this time I think there's been a loss of aspiration, which is one reason why I really value your work, Dave. The intelligence in it, the, com- the complexity of it, the, the respect for the complexity, you know? And I think that at a time when people feel stressed and distracted and sort of awash in consumerism as well, it's easy to lose sight of the peaks of human potential. You know, I kind of came of age in the 60s and 70s where there was a lot of appreciation for uh, uh, self-actualization, peak experiences, full awakening, what really is available to us. Why not? You know, and as you develop steadiness, lovingness, equanimity, present moment awareness, sense of wholeness, sense of allness, even a sense of timelessness, as you develop these seven qualities of being I talk about, you become a lot more able to deal with the crud of everyday life. You uh, you certainly do, at least I, I would think you would, uh, not probably having achieved all that I could in those areas. Now, I, I, I focus on anti-aging in my last book, in part because I always learn more from people who have more mileage than I do. And mm-hmm. you've been... Uh, for me to have the number of years of daily meditation that you have, I would have had to start meditating when I was two. <laughs> <laughs> so. I didn't do it every day, but I think it's also true. A person could be genuinely meditative. And I'm going to interrupt you if it's okay. I'm just going to drop in this quote that I think about a lot from, of all people, Milarepa, this great 
Tibetan sage, mm-hmm. who's, who is describing toward the end of his life, his own life of practice. And it applies to his lifespan. It also applies to specific smaller things that we are looking to develop. He said, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left. And I think that describes a progression of practice. You know, in the beginning, we're trying to help ourselves have experiences, have states. In the middle, we're trying to stabilize those states as traits, but they keep slipping away when we come at it. And then by the end, they've really stabilized as traits. We really are steady, loving, calm, happy, content as our ground of being, which is the basis upon which then we meet the next wave of life. Right. We don't stop engaging life. But what's in our core as we deal with life and what is the possibility for actually developing a kind of unshakable inner serenity, contentment and love and strength and wisdom that we see perfected in people who are far along? You know, for me, I don't I want to get to the top. Right. Uh, You know, so my ego is really, really smaller than yours. all that. (laughs) But what really matters is, is the next step worth taking? Right. Can you see the next step? Does the trail lead onward? Does it feel like it's full of heart? Can you respect people who are a little farther along? Um, you know, I've gone climbing a ton, as I've said, and I've had friends who are farther along than me, and they would turn around up a route or up a trail and kind of beckon me onward. Hey, it's cool up here. The view's amazing. Watch out for the ice. You know, you can do it. Quit whining. Start climbing. Right. And I think much the same way the great teachers, you know, they're turning around with a sweet smile and saying, hey, Keep going. It's cool. You can do it. Just take the next step. I, I really like that. It's uh, it's fantastic. And you talk about steadiness. Now, there I've had people on the show uh, talking about you know flow states. Actually, several different people. Uh, and you know, when I was young, oh, let me just mountain bike downhill really fast. Um, that that'll do it because you know, you have to focus. Otherwise, you hit a tree. <laughs> and, and sort of using the environment to force you into that. Um, and there's a lot of people now who have ADHD who don't know it uh, mm-hmm. and or, you know, at least sometimes they eat in such a way that they have ADHD for at least the day and they don't know that happened either. Uh, and that seems like the opposite of steadiness. Mm-hmm. So how does one cultivate steadiness, uh, especially if you have a mind that's prone to bouncing around, which seems it's spreading? Yeah. yeah. One part of it, I think, is to respect normal variation in human temperament. And to appreciate that as our ancestors evolved in small bands, roughly 40, 50 people, it was adaptive for bands as a group, which competed with other bands, often in very violent and intense ways for scarce resources. It was adaptive for bands to have temperamental diversity. That's genuine diversity. So it was helpful to have, I think, of a kind of cautious, careful, plodding turtles, and then also excitable, spirited ADHD-ish, let's say, jackrabbits. I don't think of it as a disorder myself, as a clinical psychologist. No, I think it's, it's, a, it's a superpower. Yeah, it's a normal variation. And then you have kind of tweeners in the middle. I'm kind of probably sort of a tweener, although I'm playful and excitable. Anyway, it's good to be, it's good to be all those things. So anyway, first step is just acknowledge who you are. And if you stop struggling with it and resisting it, that's half of it right there in terms of developing greater steadiness. And part of that is if you want to help yourself steady, Make sure you've got enough stim coming to satisfy stim hunger so that you don't get agitated, that you're not getting enough stimulation. To use an extreme example, um, I worked with a, I would, I'm a therapist, so I worked with this kid who was about 11 when I saw him. 
And um, he was not neurotypical. He was very neuroatypical. And, as, and he cried all the time when he was an infant. He was never settleable. And his mother finally, in desperation, put a TV in his bedroom when he was about six months old and turned it on to like a cartoon channel, something mm-hmm. wholesome. Uh, and then uh, she just left it on 24-7. And that's what put him to sleep. He wow. needed the stimulation to be able to settle. So if you're meditating, for example, and you're restless, uh, choose something more stimulating than the feeling of the breath around your nostrils. <laughs> you know, walk around, focus on the sense of your body as a whole, which is a fantastic hack. It does like two or three things at once to just be aware of the feeling of being a whole body breathing or focus on something that's more stimulating and enjoyable, like like gratitude or a feeling of loving your dog or your friend. Uh, that that's another thing to really do. And then I would say the last thing that's really cool neurologically that I'll, and there are multiple other things, but this is, I think will appeal to you. Uh, dopamine. So if you want to stay focused on something, including this conversation or the stream of consciousness altogether, or something very specific, like the sensations of breathing, you know, inside your body, if you want to focus on anything operationally, what that means is that the neural substrates of working memory and the upper outer frontal regions of the brain are gated so that you, they sustain the representation of whatever you're focusing on. That's a kind of geeky way of describing it, but it's factually true. Well, what regulates that gate? It's regulated by dopamine. And when dopamine levels drop, the gate opens, so new distractions can come in. I think of them as like frisky little animals that want to come into the pasture and disrupt mm-hmm. your calm and mellow sheep. Right. But on the other hand, when dopamine levels stay steady, the gate is closed because, in effect, what you're focusing on is rewarding. So you keep being focused on it. We share this mechanism with other primates. Another thing that opens the gate is a surge of dopamine with a new opportunity for reward, something kind of cool that might happen. So you open the gate so you could deal with the next thing. What this means functionally is that happiness is skillful means. As we increase emotionally positive experiences, so the sense of reward increases, dopamine remains stable. And as we intensify that, as we cultivate really strong feelings of contentment, tranquility, gratitude, or love, dopamine levels are already at their ceiling. See, they can't get a spike. And you stay concentrated and stable in the focus of your attention. A lot of people kind of push away positive experiences. They have this sort of grim, dour, bleh, you know, <laughs> attitude toward life and, and contemplative practice and awakening. And that's not skillful. What's really skillful, obviously, is to appreciate what's painful and sad and so forth, while increasingly cultivating a kind of unconditional joy inside yourself, gobsmacked with gratitude when you look around yourself at a blade of grass, in part because it helps to steady your mind. But what about uh, drugs? So you're saying, oh, you need to steady your mind? Hey, let's have some GABA (laughs) activation. Just have a couple shots of vodka and, you know, let's, uh, oh, how about some endocannabinoids? Those, you know, what what are the role of those uh, in, in your book, Neurodharma? Yeah. So I'm personally pragmatic. For me, um, there are multiple ways to influence the physiology, right? And there are multiple ways to influence, you know, the experiences that our nervous system is representing and enabling. Uh, I've used all kinds of drugs. Um, 
I find for myself that- You are at UC Berkeley, just wanted to, you know, <laughs> you're sort of stating the obvious, my friend. <laughs> that's right, that's really right. No, our kids, our kids, they're, I, was, I was joking with you totally earlier, kidding. they're like, you know, late 20s, early 30s, and they think they're really cool. My wife and I just sort of stare at them and like, oh, you have no idea, <laughs> really no idea. Anyway, so um, I think of Gurdjieff's line about drugs. He says they're like a telescope. They show you what's possible but then you need to walk there on your own. Ah, thank you for saying that, yes. Yeah, it's the walking there on your own part that I, as I the older I get, the more I kind of appreciate that part. When I talk with you know, the elders of the, the psychedelic community, and some of whom are you know, Berkeley-based, yeah. uh, they, they will almost universally say that, and some of the, the younger, uh, more ebullient people are sort of saying, I've done 100 ayahuasca ceremonies, and, and I'm like, I hate to tell you, it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you're not supposed to have to do that. <laughs> That's right. That's really right. Well, it's that Miller-Rep line. You know, what stays and what doesn't need to be propped up. And uh, we're recording this um, early in April 2020. And uh, I think a lot of people are realizing that their circumstances and settings and activities and the experiences they've had have propped them up. But when the storm has come, this pandemic, it's stripped that away. And what people are left with is what they've cultivated inside that's stable. And for some people, they look inside, it's kind of like an empty cupboard. And that's why I think, again, it's so important to keep focusing on that transition from state to trade. States are easy. Experiences are cheap. They're so easy. What are the lasting residues they leave behind woven into your body physically? That's what really counts over time. That makes a lot of sense. And so if that's steadiness, let's go to the next part of your book. I'm, I'm, we're sort of getting the masterclass on, uh, on yeah. neurodharma, uh, and I think we can get all of it into one hour or thereabouts worth of episode, just, to, just a, a little bit of each one. Yeah. I definitely want to accelerate on the last four, because I know you four. will geek out the most on that. Okay. So lovingness. Now, this is the opposite of meditating on the blood of your enemies. Uh, <laughs> that is exactly right. Or the classic <laughs> line, right? Resentment is taking poison and waiting for others to die. Right, right. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, what is lovingness? <laughs> for me, again, it's a, what do you see perfected? Pick your tradition or including secular traditions, right? Um, and what you see developed is this unshakable capacity to be rested in compassion and kindness while also being fearless uh, interpersonally. And um, there's a like a saying, a proverb, you know, one is wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. And it's that combination together, I think. So there's a lot of research, some of it involving the vagus nerve complex, some of it involving flows of oxytocin, the way that it interacts with the threat response system. There's plenty of evidence that we really can gradually cultivate, trait compassion, trait kindness, trait interpersonal courage. I think a lot of people are, are quite courageous and brave when it comes to business and physical activities. I would say to generalize, uh, maybe controversially, men in particular, but when it comes to interpersonal uh, rela you know, relationships or, or vulnerability or intimacy or full self-expression, they're kind of cowardly. They don't really have much courage in that department. So that chapter is of the book. There's one chapter for each of the seven practices. It's a real cut to the taste book with about 800 references and notes buried in the back in the fine print, okay. right, for those who care about that. So, yeah, I think um, 
lovingness is definitely something we can develop. Uh, we can develop the cultivate the warming of the heart. As the heart warms, it's easier to steady the mind. As the heart warms, then the third practice I call resting in fullness. It's what is it really like to rest in a sense of peacefulness, contentment, and love, equanimity in a word that's that's warm, that's saturated with well-being without craving. The brain is designed to crave. It's really hard not to crave, including extreme subtleties of drivenness or resisting what's unpleasant or clinging to interpersonal supplies. Do you like me? Can you give me more five-star ratings? You know, like, <laughs> my precious, that hunger. It's really yeah. hard not to do that, right? So that, that chapter, Resting in Fullness, really explores how powerful it is to repeatedly internalize the felt sense of needs met enough in the moment so that you gradually rest in that even as you deal with challenges. Um, so those are the first three. You could summarize them as steadiness, lovingness, and fullness. And they kind of go together. You can feel it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could feel it. And then on the basis of it, bring it on. Come on, life. Let's play. Okay. So, so you've got those. Now, the last four in, in your book, wholeness. Uh, okay, but not fullness. We're talking about wholeness. So somehow that's different from fullness. Okay, what is that? Yeah, yeah. And again, I, I really invite people to kind of orient to this, both in terms of what do you recognize in people that you just think to yourself, like that kindergarten teacher who was kind of a living saint. When she passed away, 300 people came to her memorial in that small town. You know, just what what was going on there, right? How do you do that? So you can see it in others. You can feel it in yourself. It's not exotic. So what do I mean by wholeness? I mean, fundamentally, a sense of accepting yourself fully, feeling undivided, and increasingly experiencing your own consciousness within ordinary reality, your own consciousness as a unified whole, not as parts in conflict with other parts. And a really powerful piece of useful underlying brain science about this, if you'll kind of bear with me, I'll take about mm -hmm. a minute to summarize yeah. it. When we are task-oriented, uh, we tend to engage cortical networks in the midline of the brain, uh, midline of the cortex, toward the front. When we are spacing out and engaging the default mode, the default mode network, um, we tend to engage cortical networks in the midline as well, more toward the back and spreading. This is very familiar to you. In either of those networks, which intertwine, there tends to be a lot of mental time travel, focusing on the future, you know, thinking about the past, also with a strong sense of self and a lot of verbal activity. There's mm -hmm. a place for that, but if we think about a lot of our suffering, it has to do with being lost in the simulator or the ruminator, we could say. And uh, you've probably seen research that shows that when uh, people are randomly pinged throughout the day, on average, uh, they're distracted 50% of the time. They're not here. They're gone. They're lost in thought 50% of the time. At least that's the average. That means for people like you and me who are fairly present, there's some people who are really gone 80% of the time. And the more gone you are, the more distracted you are, the more your mind tends to be colored with negative emotions of various kinds. So being able to um, get some kind of self-regulation of those midline cortices is really useful. On the other hand, this is one of the coolest, most useful findings of all. When people are really dropped into the present, when they're um, in the present with little sense of self, not abstracting, not trying to solve problems, they're not lost in thought, Midline cortical activity decreases dramatically. 
And activity increases dramatically on lateral networks on the sides of the brain, especially the right hemisphere for right-handed people, reversed for many left-handed people, but the principle is the same because the right hemisphere of the brain does gestalt holistic processing, the sense of things as a whole. And a very simple hack people can do just right now as they listen is try to get a sense of your body as a whole. You may need to be quiet for a moment or two to get a feeling for that. And notice what happens in your mind. It's like a gear shift. You're shifting modes. You're moving from midline mode of doing, in a word, to the lateral mode, lateral networks on the sides, right-sided mainly, of being. And you can immediately feel that. Or if you get a sense of the room as a whole. As soon as I start looking around, my room as a whole, anything as a whole, you're working that right hemisphere and you're tending to increase lateral network activity um, and reduce midline activity. So with training, and research shows this, most people have no capacity to sustain the lateral mode of being. And yet with training, even college sophomores, the great guinea pigs of social sciences <laughs> uh, with an eight-week mindfulness type program can stabilize lateral mode activation. And you can see the circuitry lighting up, as it were, in MRIs much more stably. So that's a sense of wholeness. And I find that that is a very useful thing these days, especially when we're bombarded with all these parts grabbing for our attention, to be able to rest in the sense of wholeness. Wow, honestly, it's really peaceful. So that it, it's a big deal, the idea of, of being a, a complex system, you know, hardware, software, but all working together versus seeing individual aspects of it, sort of the seeing the whole elephant versus seeing the elephant's leg kind of thing. That's right. And feeling it. So in, in a great way, and like I said, is feel your body as a whole. And then if you, if you want to, you can bring in the sense of hearing and seeing. Suddenly, you're in your mind as a whole. And if you think of it, a structural feature of unhappiness of any kind is parts struggling with parts, right? right. See the cookie, that's a part want the cookie, second part, self-criticism. No, no, you don't deserve a cookie. You're fat. You know, that's the third <laughs> part. Fourth part comes in, Dave Asprey's voice. Well, you just need to work on your ketones or something or other, you know? And, right. like, and then the fifth voice goes, what am I insane? Parts struggling with parts. When you drop into the hole and you can observe it directly in your experience, whew, it gets quiet. It's like you're the whole pond, which is always still if you think of it as a whole, even though the surface is ruffled by the worldly winds. Now that, that raises all sorts of, uh, all sorts of questions yeah. uh, around the, the technique to actually get there. Is there some kind of a breathing thing that, that you have people do or do they oh, run yeah. electricity? Like what, what's the, what's the best way for that? I love the weird saying, I, you've got to know it from MIT's media lab, demo or die. Right. You've got yeah. to demo it. Yeah. I think about the Buddha, kind of my root teacher. He was interested in what's true. He was much more interested in what works. Right. So what works? What are the methods? You know, what serves? So there are many methods in the book. And for example, with wholeness, like I said, if you just take three breaths, um, you'll notice there are a lot of sensations of breathing. But you'll notice that much like an image has many parts in it, and yet we experience it as a single visual percept. You and I are looking at each other right now on Skype. We're seeing each other. I'm aware of the room I'm in. It's got many parts, but it's one visual field, one percept. You can do the same with sensations. You start to get a sense of your sensations as a whole, all of them together as a single whole. Let's say starting in a small area around your chest, uh, maybe around your heart as you breathe. 
and then expanding into the torso and then the legs, the shoulders, the back, in, in, in eventually your whole body, you know, after a while, nothing leaves. You're very able, as, as I am now, to just drop in at will to that experience, including in a busy business meeting. It's really useful to be able to drop in to the sense of your body as a whole. Um, you are engaging those lateral networks, and you'll just watch. It just sucks you into the present in a good way, decreases the sense of me, possessiveness, taking life so personally. Uh, it's very calming. That's a great way, just feeling your body as a whole. If you want to do it visually, you can just get a sense of the room as a whole. Suddenly, you're in a sense of a whole. And that's very effective. Over the course of my uh, practice in meditation and all the other weird stuff that I've, I've yeah. studied from around the world, uh, very early on, it was you, know, you study body awareness, you know, focus, focus on your toes, focus on your knees, you, know, you work your way up, but eventually you find you can sort of spread that around. Exactly. And it, it becomes relatively effortless, but it, it does take time. And for me, the feedback with technology helped a lot. How does that tie into nowness? Nowness is so interesting. I mean, because it gets at some deep questions about physical reality, right? Yeah. And what is now? What is time? Why is there anything new? Why does why is the universal changing? And um, in the book, I, I mentioned this uh, notion from Richard Muller, a world-class physicist at UC Berkeley, that he talks about the Big Bang universe as four-dimensional, which is kind of basic relativity. One of the four dimensions is time. The whole universe is expanding. We don't recognize the spatial expansion directly. You need sophisticated telescopes to recognize the ways in which the universe itself is expanding spatially in three dimensions what if time is that fourth dimension that's also expanding so the expansion of the four-dimensional universe in terms of time is the next moment of now right so we are all living in creation in effect at the emergent edge of now the question is how to rest there subjectively and this goes to two attention networks in the brain right so the older more primal one uh lower down in the in the brain uh, that we share with simpler animals like lizards or goldfish in my backyard right. pond um, is continually updating consciousness. It's like the leading edge of the windshield of consciousness. What's new? What's new? What's new? It's alerting. And you can be, we can be mindful of the sense of being alerted to something new in the first, you know, like something happens, the phone rings, let's say, and then you freeze the movie and you rewind it slowly there's that very first quarter second, something has happened. You don't even know what it is. You don't even know where it is. And then coming online, usually within a, another couple of half seconds, is what it is and what to do about it. But that initial surge of the new is managed by an ancient attention network in the brain that manages alerting and updating. Okay. Then if we want to sustain attention to the phone and decide what to do about it, we start engaging networks that are higher up in the cortex and more recently evolved through which we sustain focused attention. And therefore, if you want to operationalize being here now, if you want to really operationalize the felt sense of being at the emergent edge of consciousness, it means becoming more mindful of the alerting network of attention and right. more able to regulate it rather than getting sucked in to the cascade behind it. And if you think about it structurally, again, if you're interested in suffering less, right, and uh, abiding in with this, you know, emergent sense of freshness and delight, 
uh, letting go continuously, not, not attaching to the experiences flowing through, which is a major aspect of the perfection of awakening, right? That quality of receptive presence while continuously letting go, continuously letting go. How do you actually do that, right? Um, uh, especially with a brain that's, you know, very good at mental time travel and leaving the present. Well, there are a number of ways you can train and alert it and being able to just turn it on at will. So you live in that arising freshness of the moment, which is totally delightful. And then actually, you start to become more and more able to just continually abide in this temporally infinitely thin slice of time that is now, right? You can abide right in the now while functioning, while engaging life, which is like walking and chewing gum more than that, kind of at the same time. And neurologically, we can really, really do it, especially by training yourself to just relax into the updating of consciousness and not chasing um, any particular experience. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Now, this isn't in your book, uh, but I want to ask your opinion on it anyway. Um, I've I've come across a, a bunch of different shamanic teachings, and I was trying to explain this to my kids yesterday. And the the general perspective there is that um, if you own the land, then time owns you. But if the land owns you, then you own time. True or false? Well, I <laughs> I would say experientially true. Yeah, yeah, because when you're it's so interesting. You know, you must know Dogen, the great Japanese Zen master who wrote this beautiful collection of um, writings called essentially Being Time, you know, time being, for the time being. And um, he also uh, has this classic saying that to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self, and then to forget the self is to be lived by all things. And I think there is that truth. When we are lived by all things, then uh, we are increasingly rested in the eternal present, you know, as time passes. 
I've gone to great lengths to not really pay much attention to what time it is or uh, what day of the week it is. Yeah. Uh, and it, it drives my wife nuts uh, because what are you doing later this afternoon? I have no idea. I'm like I have a calendar, it's all written down and I'm going to do what the calendar says. Yeah. But I'm not going to focus on it because that's not what I'm doing now. And I don't want to lose my focus on, on what I'm doing now. And other people, what are you doing next April? I'm like, I, I don't even know if it's April right now. And, and truly, I don't. I, I have to think about it or maybe look it up sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but that can be a little bit dysfunctional, to be perfectly honest. I can do that because I have an assistant who helps me do my calendar. <laughs> but if I had to do my own calendar, I'd be pretty damn focused on, <laughs> on not nowness, on laterness, or what did I forgetness? How do normal people without assistance do that? Oh, uh, that's really interesting. Well, um, I would say that I think there are people who are rare, like Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, who just seem to have a hard time functioning in a complicated uh, technological society. So they have support. But in most cases, the people that I know, at least, who I would say are very far along in their practice, they're really quite functional. They're perfectly able to deal, you know, with functionality. And they can kind of live in both worlds, you know. They have this restedness. There's this kind of sweet smile, usually, that is in their background. Well, meanwhile, they're running their monastery, right? Or yeah. they're managing their, their thing. I yeah. just uh, recently uh, interviewed Deepak Chopra, who, by the way, was, is on your book. He recommended your book. That's uh, good. And so we sat down, and and after the interview, he's like, you know, I don't really like going to you know, doing conferences like this. You know, I, I do them because they're helpful, but really, what I want to do is just you know go out in, in the forest and be by myself for four hours a day. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but he yeah. was you know fully we're at the Mil the Michael Milken conference, you know, big charitable investor conference kind of thing. So it it was he was clearly able to walk in both worlds and you know, be happy in both, uh, which, That's right. which was neat. Think about the Dalai Lama, right? Uh, one hand, spiritual leader. On the other hand, you know, he's, he's sort of the exiled uh, chief of state, essentially, for the Tibetan people in exile, um, trying to manage the Tibetan diaspora. So, yeah. Well, let me talk about allness. Yeah, I yeah. Let's talk you about know, allness. Because, again, this is like, to me, this is the really, really neat stuff. So, allness, a couple of questions. Clearly, about a third of the people surveyed worldwide without psychedelics have had these radical, they're called self-transcendent experiences, peak experiences, that have two fundamental characteristics. The details often vary. They can be religiously saturated or not. The details vary, but the essence is simple. First, the ordinary sense of self just drops out, usually suddenly, gone. And it's replaced by this wonderful sense of the universe shining forth in radiant perfection both together. Just one, and I've known people who've experienced only the sense of self dropping out, can be deeply alarming, if not psychotically disturbing. You need both, actually. So question is, what in the world is going on in the brain when that happens? Or more generally, how can we, you know, as the Dalai Lama said to the hot dog vendor, make me one with everything, right? How can we actually have that very beautiful sense of not being separated and beleaguered and at war with reality, but more buoyed by it, you know, interdependently arising. How do we actually uh, live in a felt way continuously that kind of cl those classic recognitions identified in Buddhist psychology in which we recognize the emptiness 
of existent phenomena. It's cloud-like, not brick-like, while feeling that we are a local expression of everything, that we are, an, we are a wave in the ocean of allness, you know, and our nature is water, right? How do we actually do that? And what turns out is that in your brain, normally, are these two circuits, uh, and this will start to connect with nowness and wholeness. Um, we normally oscillate back and forth in normal brain function between what could be what is called an egocentric perspective, not pejoratively. It's not bad to be egocentric in this sense. It's just self-referential. So I'm doing it right now. I'm looking around the room. I'm looking at you. And it's in reference to my perspective. And there's a sense of personal relevance in it. What's this got to do with me? Then the brain, usually several times a minute, visually especially, cycles through a sense of everything impersonally as it is, with no perspective privilege in it. It's like what it is. So that's called an allocentric perspective. Interestingly, the allocentric perspective is much more ancient than the egocentric one. Very simple animals have this. Uh, they're, they're grounded in the allocentric perspective of just the jungle as a whole, or this little moment of me, being a beetle crawling on a leaf or being a lizard, you know, recognizing the, the tree, the leaf, and the beetle, right? That's allocentric. Uh, not much sense of self, you know, right? To the extent that uh, to know, to study, to practice the way is to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self, but that's a value. It then gets really interesting. What's the underlying neurology of selflessness? You're still a person. You're not depersonalized. You have dignity and rights and responsibilities, but the sense of ego, the sense of contraction, the sense of identification and possessiveness really falls away. What's going on in the brain when that happens? Well, the egocentric perspective is much more recent. And uh, to do a little hack here, if you look down kind of towards what's near you, it will naturally bring that egocentric perspective online because in the wild, Stone Age or Jurassic Park, what's close is personally relevant, friend or foe, eat it or be eaten by it, right? On the other hand, if you lift your gaze to the horizon or above, you can watch your own mind. You will start to move into a sense of things as a whole. There will be less self-referential processing, and probably will come along with it a sense of kind of a peacefulness, uh, a, a presence, right? Because that's engaging the allocentric perspective. Yeah. Can you do that inside a small apartment? Yeah, you can do okay. it anywhere. So, so it doesn't matter how far the gaze goes. Exactly, exactly okay. right. Does it work better though, if you get to go outside and look at, you know, uh, at least a, a, something across the street or in my case, Salt Spring Island, but. Yeah. Um, I feel like it does, but, and, but it, it might not in the practice you're describing. I think you're exactly right. And there's not a, there, there's a lot of research on the basics of this, but the actual super practical applications, it's more you know anecdotal. And you can run experiments in the laboratory of your own body mind, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing, you're a master of that one. So what you can notice, it's about uh, two, three meters away from yourself when the, mm -hmm. you, the gaze starts to shift which really is interesting in evolution that that's a natural distance for primates, especially humans and hominids for, you know, it gets significant when it's within a few meters. But if you start moving out, it just starts shifting and you can feel it. And 
uh, it really starts to speak to the common fact that many people have had awakening experiences out in nature, mm-hmm. which tends to, to pull you into that allocentric space, uh, while gazing out, if not even up to the heavens, and often involving surprise. And this is where I'm going to tie it all together. Okay. The allocentric networks neurologically are located lower in your brain much as the attentional networks are lowered are lower in your brain and the the updating network of attention the alerting network of attention that more okay. primal ancient one of nowness is low and right-sided okay lateral networks right-sided allocentric networks low on both sides and you can start to feel the ways that they reinforce each other when you come into that sense of being uh, of midline pardon me of lateral activation, a sense of wholeness, okay, that tends to naturally bring you into nowness. You're more and more the emergent moment. Things are happening. Things are happening. I don't need to control them. I don't need to understand them. I don't need to fit them together. It's all happening so fast as I'm just kind of flying forward through reality, nowness, that naturally also pulls you into allness, that sense of everything as a whole, and that what you are experiencing right now is just a quivering locally in the vast tapestry of reality. And that experiential integration of wholeness, nowness, and allness is supported by the neural, neurological integration of the circuitry of those three, which you can strengthen and train over time. So more and more you can drop into that when you want. Now, if you were to, uh, to take that and look at the neuroscience of it. So you say it's lower in the brain. Is yeah. there certain frequencies? I, a lot of the work that I do now uh, in the neuroscience group is uh, it's around networks. Yeah. So it's about making this network talk to that network. So right. are we talking? Oh, you've got you know delta frequencies, you know, in, in the occipital lobes, or, or do we really not know that yet? I have. So I um, I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know something. And if we know something, we know more than nothing, right? One is infinitely more than zero. So um, uh, what I would just say about that is I've never seen any um, uh, operationalization of the more circuit-based neuroscience that I'm speaking of in terms of brainwaves, for example. I think that would be a deeply interesting exploration to go into. What is clear the one thing that is clear in terms of brainwave activity is that people who have a long meditative practice and can drop into the sense of wholeness really readily, they tend to have m- much more both resting state and um, on com- demand gamma range yeah. brainwave activity, which is, you know, of course, is very, very fast synchronization of vast uh, coalitions of neurons all firing together 30 or more times a second. And that sense of gamma range activity or gamma range activities associated with integration and wholeness and also steeper learning curve, steeper growth. Yeah. It's funny in the 90s, we were all into, oh, it's all about these alpha brain waves because we could measure them because they're easy to measure. And it turns out a lot of the crazy Buddha stuff comes from uh, comes from gamma and it comes yeah. from waves on top of waves yeah. and from this one little node to another node. But I feel like as a whole, the field is, is teasing that out. And I... I, literally every week, at least when the pandemic hasn't put things on pause for a little while, every week it's like, oh, there's a few new brains coming through. People were already at a certain level, yeah. and then 
what what are the super high performance things that stand out? So I'm just looking at the outliers going, let's look at the outliers. Let's look at the outliers and see what's going on. Exactly right. You know, it's funny, Dave, just when you started speaking, honestly, I felt this kinship with you around exploration. It's exciting to explore. And I it is. Yeah. 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 And to feel that we have the capacity to do it. Um, I personally uh, like exploring just inside the inner temple because <laughs> we can always do it. We don't need anything complicated and no one can defeat us there in the innermost sanctuary of our mind. While simultaneously, I have tremendous respect for the kind of technology really broadly you've developed, for example. Oh, it's not just me. <laughs> I, I hire smart people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it, but it's that spirit of exploration. You know, it reminds me of, I would go into the wilderness a lot with friends and I had two friends in particular. One friend, We'd set up camp somewhere, and he would plop down in a camp chair he brought along with his cigar and a novel. That was his idea of a good time. Okay, I respect that. He's probably more of a turtle. But <laughs> another friend named Bob, longtime climbing partner, we would just sort of have breakfast, you know, finish our coffee and look around, and we'd see some kind of hill or peak or valley or something. And we'd go, wow, that would be kind of cool. Let's go there. And uh, it's that spirit of exploration that I, that I, you know, I really respect and appreciate. You mentioned earlier in the interview that that you know, there's there's the turtles and you know, yeah. other people like that. Uh, do you have a good taxonomy for the types of people there are? So, how many explorers <laughs> like, like you or me are there versus uh, aliens versus robots? I, I have no idea. Like, like what, what's your taxonomy look like? M muggles versus wizards. What? what do, how do you think? Yeah, of this? yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll give you one that just I've never said to anyone really in an interview. So. Uh, one version of it would be to imagine yourself in some guided visualization way uh, going back down a deep tunnel and it's all very ancient. And then you come to a door made of wood, clearly tens of thousands of years old. You're going to come out into a Stone Age environment and you're going to be who you are in that setting, right? given the kind of roles available uh, to people in that setting archetypally. Who are you when you walk through that door? Right? So I, I find that really interesting to explore. Who knows what it might say about past lives? Don't know. But in terms of our own psychology, who are you? So that's one. Um, I think the temperamental spectrum is very useful. There's a lot of um, value there. A lot of therapists kind of ignore temperament at their peril. I think that's a big mistake. Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids are pathologized because they're jackrabbits trying to, you know, live in a turtle pen taught by turtles, well-meaning turtles who are trying to make them turtles. And it's a problem of fit. It's not a pathology. Um, so there's that one. There are a few others. Uh, in the Buddhist tradition, there are so-called greed types and hatred types. And I think they left out more the interpersonal types, you know, the kind of clinging types. But um, I'm probably more of a greed type. I'm opportunity-oriented more than threat-oriented. So those are some typologies. Who do you think you would be if you popped out 30,000, 40,000 years ago? I would either be the guy making flint uh, or I'd be like the village medicine person, you know, going out there and eating plants and seeing what happened to me. Yeah, one of the two. yeah, yeah. Um, I that, see that in you. Yeah, yeah. That, would, that would probably be the good fit. Um, 
But I don't know. I think I've evolved a little bit since that time. So I might've just been the guy out there bathing myself in the blood of my enemies too. So, you know, <laughs> it turns how linear time really is, doesn't it? <laughs> but you can kind of see that. Like I respect warriors, you know, the warriors kept yeah. the rest of us alive, but you can kind of see people's nature and you can kind of have, yeah. I, <clears throat> yeah, I, I myself, um, I would be like a, a, a shamanic character, you know, yeah. kind of in my nature. I, I can see that life. you've got that, you've got that calmness. Uh, yeah, it, it's a very good time now in the world because there's way more peace than there's ever been. Even though people yeah. always you know, are freaking out about whatever they see in the news, but statistically, there's way less war, way less of that stuff. Yeah, uh, and way oh, you can just get food. It just arrives at your door even during a pandemic. There's a box of food. Like like seriously, like how cool is that? Normally, you'd have to yeah. go out and like kill yeah. a neighbor to get it. Yeah, uh, and and that's most of human history. So that warrior thing has been kind of necessary because if you wanted to be the the shaman, you probably needed some warriors around you, or someone would come yep. in, you know, steal your drum or whatever yep. they did to shamans back then. Yeah. Um, so that that brutish, violent history of humanity uh, it is something that a lot of us have forgotten about. You know, the the number of people walking around now who are thirty who have never once been in a fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> or or wrestled with someone who really was trying to do them harm. Yeah, um, it, it's actually pretty shocking to me in, in the West. But I think if you go to most uh, most of the uh, non European countries, it's exceptionally common because it happened in fifth grade or something. But here they're throwing fifth graders in jail for that kind of stuff. It's weird. It is interesting. I think about this quote from I always mispronounce his name, Tanahasi Coates, uh, who said that privilege is not having to take something into account. Yeah. And I've reflected on that a lot. You know, I walk down a dark city street in the middle of the night. I'm a tall dude and yeah. I don't worry about sexual assault. I might worry uh -huh. about being robbed, you know, but I don't worry about sexual assault in a sense. It's a in a word. It's a charged word, but I could call it privilege. Well, I think one thing that is just remarkable to me, which goes exactly to what you're saying, we continually forget that um, up to just 10,000 years ago, a blink in our evolutionary history as a 300,000 year old species, anatomically modern, rested on another two million plus years of tool manufacturing, smart hominid ancestors, we all lived in small bands. And we just routinely forget that. I'm amazed walking down a street that people are not slugging each other or robbing yeah. each other or frankly raping each other. And yeah. um, we leave it out. So and this is where the privilege of modern technology to forget our hunter-gatherer origins. And yet that is our deep neurobiology. That is our deep you know, neuropsychology as hunter gatherers. It's funny um, the way you talk about that. You know, I'm a you know, 200, 210 pound, like, you know, tall white dude. I was in Nepal in 2004, back. This is when I uh, actually went from Nepal to Tibet to study meditation and to uh, learn wow. about yak butter tea, apparently. Uh, but the Red Cross had left the country because there were Maoist rebels uh, who yeah. were overthrowing the government. And they basically said, you know, every, it, all Americans go home. And I'm like, uh, I, I'm going to just carry some Canadian currency and pretend like I'm Canadian. And I lost my passport, you know, young, young and dumb. Uh, so I'm walking around, not a lot of tourists at present. And I've never really felt that fear of sexual assault. But then, you know, the Nepalese are very polite, nice people. And they say, oh, I'll help you find your hotel, which is you know, winding streets. So I'm following this guy. And then he starts, you know, kind of, trying to make the moves, but he doesn't want, you know, to have uh, sex with me. He wants to bring me to his friend. So I'm like, wait, this, this, there's some like dark guy who's sending people out to pick up tourists to, 
And, and then he said, oh no, it's through this park. And I'm like, I'm gonna get jumped in this park. And like for the first time in my life, right, the only time in my life, I was actually worried about sexual assault. Like, good thing I have a, I have a pocket knife. And he, I'm sure the guy doesn't know. I had my knife like ready. I, I was like, I can at least take one of these guys down, but I don't know where my hotel is. And I've never have felt that fear. He just made me that pop back into my mind. And of course, because it's Nepal and because Nepalis uh, are generally very nice people, he just took me on a shortcut to my hotel. I was like, there you go. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Uh, but I, so it was all in my head. False alarm. It was all in my head. But I do remember that feeling because that, that was so random. But, you know, if I was a 5'4 woman, it might be in my head all the time. And like, how would I know? It's really intense, isn't it, to appreciate that what we don't have to take into account, all kinds of people in the world right now have to take into account. And uh, it's to me, it's really important. There's a Zen saying, nothing left out, except we always must leave things out. There's no way around it. But at least we don't have to leave out that we tend to leave things out. Mm -hmm. And we keep deliberately. This maybe goes back to metaphorically, really, that um, wellness practice of looking out to the horizon. You know, what am I not including? And how can I include more broadly, uh, morally? Uh, as well as as I include more, you know, I'm going to be able to be more uh, effective and successful in this world. Uh, I I very much appreciate that perspective. I want to pick your brain uh, on another thought here, Rick. Uh, we talked about the hardware of enlightenment. Yeah. Uh, at, at the beginning of the show. That's right. Uh, how it ties in with neurodharma and how our hardware is designed to do this. I have a theory, uh, and I didn't have this theory when I interviewed you last time, and this came about from writing Headstrong, which is my book about mitochondria and the brain. And uh, I, I now believe that the algorithm that's built, baked into our hardware before we can think of it, uh, from which the ego actually emerges, is just based on um, four rules, and really mm. three primary ego ones uh, in, in this order. Yeah. Uh, number one, run away from, kill, or hide from scary things. And and I know because all life does that, because otherwise you get eaten right away. Mm -hmm. And it works for bacteria, works for mitochondria, works for trees, works for zebras, doesn't matter. You have yep. to do that right now. Um, number two, eat everything, because famines killed your ancestors. Okay, that's why we can't say no to the bagels and whatever. Uh, number three, have sex with everything else, because if you don't do that, the species ends. In that, in that order, <laughs> right? And then number four, if there's anything left, uh, make friends, you know, build, build a community. So they're all F words, basically. Um, and that, that by following that unconsciously in a distributed system throughout the body. So, you know, quadrillions of different compute nodes, uh, each of them being mitochondria and then cells and then organ systems, uh, and then kind of rolling that stuff up into the brain where we strip stuff out that we don't want to pay attention to. And then we get a tiny bit of that left, that that's where all of the egoic behaviors actually can, can be explained from a hardware perspective that they're in there before we catch them with our consciousness and then decide what to do about it. Sound true or not? Well, uh, a comment, then a question. Okay, yeah. so on the comment side, you've described um, what are these three classic needs for safety. Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy, right. <laughs> no, well, no, a little different one. Okay. For safety, satisfaction, and connection. And this is a very common framework. I kind of built it out in my book, Hardwiring Happiness. You you have two applications of the connection need. One is reproductive. The other is affiliative, to use a fancy term, uh, as you know, pack animals. So those are our three needs, and you you nailed them. And I think it's a very useful framework, and they're loosely associated in order with the evolution of the reptilian brainstem, mm -hmm. mammalian subcortex, primate human neocortex, blah blah. 
for safety, satisfaction, connection, managed by avoiding, approaching, attaching. And you also take it down to the cellular level, which all of which sounds great. So I'm just, my feedback okay. is fantastic stuff. Then my question for you is, what do you mean egoity? Or what do you mean egoism? Well, I've been looking for that source of the ego. And yeah. I believe the ego is separate from the self. Um, from, okay. from based on this, it has its own it, its own decision making, its own willpower, and it's different. It's a different speed than our than our conscious rational thoughts. And I can prove that with neuroscience. Yeah. You, know, you you react to things before you think about them, right? Yeah. And there's there, that's a yeah. very simple test to do. Uh, so, given that there's a system in there that reacts before you can think, how would you construct that system? Now, I'm a computer science. My yeah. concentration was in a form of AI and, and, and all this stuff. So, how would you do that? in a scalable way that works across all life. Because all life has to do this, not conscious life, including either life that's not conscious or is much less conscious than we are. Slugs, uh, bacteria, spores, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so these would be the three out, the three rules that you yeah. have to follow. So now I take Stephen Wolfram's research. Um, oh. I was called a new kind of math. And he shows that if you take simple rules and repeat them almost infinite numbers of times, you end up with very complex behaviors and these yeah. amazing patterns, and it explains much of nature. But I think these are the core rules that make all life behave the way systems of life do. You just have to do that all the time. And if we program those into a neural net, by the way, don't do that. You'd probably make something that would kill all humans. Uh, but if you uh, if you did do that, you'd end up with a very close model to the way people behave before they develop the stages of enlightenment you've talked about in your book. And before we realize, oh, now I intercept these. Now what am I going to do with this signal that came from, oh, you know, my threat detection systems that are in my hand detected something and it came up and my body did something and then my mind did something with what my body did. Uh, so that I, I've been teasing that out. It's really interesting. So let, let me throw a complication in and see what your yeah. see what your take is. Okay, great. So we have, um, <clears throat> I say, three needs: organism, whether it's at a cellular level or scaled up to um, a, a lizard, mouse, or monkey, or human. Let's say, need to be safe in various ways. Need to be satisfied in various ways, notably fed. And also need to be uh, connected with others of one's kind, including being able to procreate and so forth. Okay. Um, to me, the question is, how do we meet those needs? Do we meet those needs on the basis of an underlying sense of deficit and disturbance? Something missing, something wrong that pushes us into what I call the red zone uh, and then tends to trigger fight, flight, freeze behaviors of various kinds. Or alternately, do we avoid harms for safety, do approach rewards for satisfaction, and attach to others for connection on the basis of an underlying sense of well-being, of fullness and balance already, right? So the key distinction is not around the needs. Yes, you're exactly right. Life must manage these needs. The definition of debt is, in a sense, failure to manage one or more of those needs at a critical level. Um, we must manage those needs, but do we need to do it on the basis of something missing and something wrong? And for me, so much of what the path of awakening is about and just ordinary training and well-being, whether you're working the hardware uh, from the bottom up or you're working the software, in fact, from the you know, inside out, um, to be able to meet our needs and help others meet our needs without the lights on the inner dashboard all flashing red. That's a key distinction. And then another key distinction, and I, you know, I'm floating this by you, this is very cool stuff, is 
are we meeting our needs on the basis of being a person who exists, has continuity as a body-mind process over time, and has you know individuality as a body-mind process, your particular wave in the sea of causes over time? Or are we managing these various needs on the basis of uh, what I'm going to call now the psychological self, that belief in or sense of a kind of reified, essentialized entity inside who uh, is driving the show. And I would just argue that uh, the more that we manage our needs on the basis of being in the red zone, something missing, something wrong, the more we suffer and harm. Uh, the more we move into the green zone, the less we suffer and harm. Same thing. The more we manage needs on the basis of a felt sense of being a person, a kind of distributed, spacious, ongoing process, rather than you know, a contracted, possessive, beleaguered, vain, narcissistic self, you know, we're also going to uh, have less suffering and do less harm. All right. What do you make of all that? It, it, it matches uh, for me. It, it's, as long as you identify that that system mm-hmm. that runs those things, it's not you. <laughs> you just inhabit that. You're like, oh, this is a characteristic of yeah. my body. And yeah. the default behavior is that. Yeah. Right? But you don't have to choose the default behavior. And yeah. it's becoming aware and seeing the default behavior and saying, oh, like that was interesting. Let me either change the programming so that the body now uh, doesn't interpret something as a threat. That's not a threat. Yeah. That's a boss move. That's a lot of the neuroscience work that I'm doing now on, on myself uh, yeah. and a few others. Uh, right. Or you just say, okay, I recognize that I got a false alarm, so I'm not going to you know, get the security service out the door. I don't have to, and I'm just going to stay centered and you know, experience wholeness and fullness and all of that. Uh, but if you believe that you are your hardware, then it's very hard to sort out which of those are yeah. you. Yeah, uh, and I I just look at all of the all the things I've ever done that I'm you know would be embarrassed of, um, uh, are all for those three first three F words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I think for a lot of people, including honestly in the world of psychology, it's a revelation to realize that you you can have your safety need really challenged. You can have you can be in a very hazardous environment. For me, rock climbing is such a metaphor while simultaneously not at all being upset, not being freaked out. Maybe there's a little anxiety around the edges to keep you on your toes, but you're not panicked. I think of Alex Honnold uh, when he was interviewed in a 60 Minutes show early on about him soloing these two, 3,000-foot you know, peaks before he did El Capitan. He was asked, uh, do you feel stressed? And she said, you must be stressed up there, you know, holding on to, you know, tiny holes the width of a pencil lead. He said, no, if I'm getting stressed, something has gone terribly wrong. So for many people, it's a revelation that they can deal with important needs without being contracted and uptight. And it's also yeah. kind of revelatory that you really can relax the sense of self and still function really effectively as a person. I, I very much like that. And uh, to do that is definitely at least one life's work uh, if you're into that multiple life thing. Yeah. And uh, your book, Neurodharma, is a definite uh, contribution to our knowledge as a species and, and is even more relevant now that uh, a lot of people are quarantined, staying at home, and uh, social distancing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so take your time, pick up Neurodharma, and uh, read that or listen to that uh, instead of binge watching your favorite Netflix. But if you did want to binge listen to Bulletproof Radio, there are worse things you could do. <laughs> uh, that's totally true. And I would just, if I could just say what this one sure. little thing, which is that um, the book's very inviting for people who are really beginning 
a personal growth process. They're, you know, they're kind of at the beginning of it. The book really focuses on intermediate to advanced practice. So if a person feels like, okay, I'm a little mindful or, okay, uh, some self-awareness, okay, I've been developing myself psychologically a little bit, what now in a really sustained way? I think they would really like the book. Um, it's a book I wrote for myself. I mean, honestly, I was geeking out the whole time in it. I was <laughs> Those are the away. best books. Oh, yeah. No, it's like all this fantastic <laughs> yeah. wisdom of the yeah. ages blah, plugged into the latest neuroscience and then applied really pragmatically in lots and lots of ways. So for me, it was just a thrill to write it. If you look at at the ROI on books, so so this this was a podcast and my expectation, I, I'm really clear about this with people who listen to the radio show regularly hear me say this, is, is that look, you should get more out of the hour that you just spent with Rick and me than you put into it. You put an hour of time and some amount of your attention. So if you don't, if the ROI is, is flat or negative, like find another podcast or just stop listening to podcasts. Right? That, yep. That's the standard. Uh, and when you go to a book though, you might, and for us to do this, okay, there's, you know, eight or 10 hours of prep work to do a good interview like this. Uh, and you compare that to a book where, what, do you spend a couple thousand hours writing the book? Yeah, at least building yeah. on all kinds of. It's a real culmination book for me, right? But it's you know, it's mm -hmm. an, it's an opus, right? You've been doing this for forty six years, and and so you've got all of that in there, and you threw away all the stuff that didn't make the cut, right? Yep. And 100%. so what you did, you've distilled. It, you it sound took like you two thousand hours of, of distillation to distill uh, hundreds of thousands of hours of stuff, and people are going to read the book in about what six hours. Could be a little longer. You're going to savor it. There's a lot of experiential practice. Okay, in so it, which maybe makes ten it hours, but, yeah. but the ROI, you're getting a lifetime of experience plus 2,000 hours of distilling the experience for you in a few hours. That's why books are so valuable. If they're written uh, with a, the sense of curiosity and exploration and interest that you have, and that the good authors do, guys like Ryan Holiday, who's even written about it in one of his books, is like, how do you make your, your best work? And uh, there's also the, hey, I just strung together a bunch of transcripts and made it into a book. It's it's a different mindset, but that's why you're the type of author I like to have on the show because, like, hey, this is my my highest and best where there's not a wasted word in there. And that that is not easy to achieve. So thank, thank you for taking the time to write a book that's Ooh, worth reading. Thank you, Dave. On that note, everyone, if you follow me, Dave.Asper on Instagram, as I finish these interviews... I am going on Instagram and you can actually ask authors questions because Instagram, the shared interviews don't work very well. I actually have this amazing technology where I turn my camera around and we just use uh, a Skype through Instagram. So you got to try this out. You'll see what I'm talking about. I save the stories on my YouTube channel and all that stuff. So come check it out. You can actually ask questions. I'll read the questions off the screen to, uh, to Rick and we'll all share it. So uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes or something, this interview is already done there. But if you follow me regularly, you'll get notifications that uh, that there's a new, uh, fresh, before you even heard it, interview where you can talk to the, the person who's on the show. I'll see you on Instagram. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. 
Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.